You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Welcome, everyone, to uh, what has become probably one of my most engaging and fun hours on a quarterly basis to be able to catch up with my friend and incredibly insightful economist and professor, Dr. Peter Linneman. I want to start first by just saying that I hope people realize how insightful Peter has been on the markets as the two of us have talked through the last, we've had six calls. This is our seventh call over the last 18 months. And um, many people will recall in the spring of 2020, when we were talking about the pandemic, we were really still in lockdown. And Peter was one of the first, if not the first person to raise the issue of the potential for civil unrest. And I think all of us who listened to that webcast sort of all of a sudden we're introduced to a different sort of view of what could end up happening. And as we all know, very unfortunately, we ended up getting that in the summer of 2020. I think one of the other things to keep in mind is that when Peter and I spoke in January of this year, if you think back to 2020 and the story from a housing standpoint for 2020, all anyone wanted to talk about was single family housing. Single family home prices had gone up, single housing starts had gone up, Mortgage rates were at historic lows, and all anyone wanted to say was, go long single family. And it was Peter who at that time said, um, it is a golden era for multifamily. It had a lot of people sort of saying, hold on a second, we thought single family was the place to be right now, not multifamily. And as all of us have seen over the last nine months, Peter saying it is a golden era for multifamily could not have been more accurate and more prescient as it relates to where the markets were going to head in 2021. So, Peter, your quarterly Lineman letter is as good as ever. I have to tell you, it's so darn good that it ends up taking me more and more time to get through it on a quarterly basis, which isn't all bad, except for the people who were traveling with me this week, is every time we hop on some plane, I would just go into my corner and sit there and start devouring the Lineman letter. But if I had to summarize the current edition, I would say your general theme is buy assets, finance them cheaply, fixed or float doesn't really make a difference, don't worry about inflation. Don't worry about interest rates. Cap rates will compress from here. Just keep buying and specifically buying multi and industrial. What did I miss? You, you pretty much got it, that the good times are going to get even better as hopefully Delta gets farther in the rearview mirror. So one of the things that you talked about last time was the September 6th date where the federal step up in unemployment benefits was going to burn off and that that was going to have a big impact on the labor markets. Is it too early to tell whether that's actually happening? It's a bit early, but the ADP data came out today on employment. And guess what? It was a massively better month than the previous Two, in spite of September being a fairly hindered month, 
This is for September, the ADP data, in spite of September being a fairly hindered date by Delta, right, by that criteria. So it's not like Delta was gone and therefore September was a lot of jobs because of that. And I think you're going to find it in the data as we get further out. Look, it's real simple. If you pay people a lot of money not to work, there's going to be a lot of people not working. Not everybody, but a lot of people. It was a well-intended policy, but from March of 2021 until September 6, basically a few states before that, you made more staying on unemployment than getting off unemployment if you were making $25 an hour or less. Is it a surprise that a fair number of people, probably three and a half million people, stayed on unemployment? It's a little like saying, if you can take depreciation, Willie, are you surprised that real estate owners take depreciation? That was what the policy asked them to do, right? In the same way, when it's gone, people are going to say, gee, honey, I went from making 100 to 130% of what I was making when I worked, when I was on unemployment, to making uh, half that or less. And They're going to go back to work. And people make this stupid statement, which is, well, they don't want to want they really don't want to work. I don't know how to break it to you, but probably half of the labor force doesn't want to work. Why do they work? They work because, oh, I don't know, they like to eat. They like to pay their rent. They like to own a car. They like to go to vacations. They like to buy clothes for their kids. That's why they work. Now, that may not be why you work, Willie, but that's why at least half the labor force works. So dive into that as it relates to the unemployment figures, because you have consistently since the beginning of the pandemic had a higher unemployment figure than the Bureau of Labor Statistics has. And your most recent number has you at, I think, 9.8% actual unemployment, which is about 13.5 million people, uh, which is roughly 8 million more than pre-pandemic. Yet off your data in Q2, GDP surpassed the best GDP pre-pandemic we've ever had at almost $22 trillion. So my question is, let's take for granted that your unemployment number is spot on and that we're going to see more and more people coming back. But I think the more, I guess, hopefully relevant question is, are we in a new normal as it relates to efficiency that we can generate $22 trillion of GDP with 13 million workers sitting on the sidelines? Answer is no. Um, We are back, as you say, to GDP where it was. However, GDP is about 4% short of where it would have been had COVID never reared its ugly head. We'd have grown about 2.5% a year for 18 months, right? So we're about 4% short. I think what you're going to see in the next year is we're going to have a, a, this year will be, quote, the normal 2.5% growth, plus making up at least half of that gap, maybe 100% of it. So we're going to see GDP growth over the next 12 months, something like 45 to 6.5%. And we've got the runway to do it. Come to the jobs and your question, well, can we do it without jobs? Jobs always lag GDP in a recovery. And for a very simple reason, employers are hesitant to bring back employees until there's proof that we're really back, right? There's always that case. And the operating model late in every recovery or late in the 
where we're at is the beatings will continue until morale improves, right? And so we try to get more work out of the existing labor force, but you can't do that forever. You can't do that forever. You can do it for six months. You can do it for a year when there's not a lot of alternatives. But eventually what happens every recovery, every recovery is you got to bring back more labor. So we are five and a half million jobs short of pre-pandemic, okay, out of about 156 million. I'm doing that off the top of my head. We're about five and a half million short. Of that five and a half million, three and a half million are people who make $25 an hour or less and didn't come back to work because they were on unemployment and it was profitable to do so. But that incentive is gone. By the way, if we'd have had a no pandemic, normal job growth, we'd have all the jobs we had pre-pandemic plus about two, two and a half million more. So when you look at jobs today, we're going to get in the next six to nine months, the three and a half million who sat on the sideline coming back. You're going to get the normal expansion of two million from a an economy that's just growing per normal. And we're going to make up some of that other gap simply because you can't just keep beating your employees. Can't. So I think you're going to see probably on the order of six million jobs added over the next 12 months and GDP growing four and a half to um, uh, six and a half percent. It's going to be a spectacular year. And as Delta gets farther down, we're going to pick up where we thought we were in June, right? That's going to pick up steam from there. So I think we're looking at an extraordinary window of time hampered by Delta, hampered by we're not as vaccinated as we could be, and hampered by when you shut down an economy, right? There's a reason you don't shut down an economy. And one of the things of it doesn't just instantly come back, right? We've talked about this. So one of the things we're still dealing with is we really, I'm not saying right or wrong. We shut down huge swaths of the economy for three to six months. Is it surprising that it doesn't just turn on like a wonderful car at that moment? There's a lot of linkages there that have to come back. And it's going to take a year or two more to come back fully. So that that goes straight to your point on inflation and inflation being transitory. You you can't turn on CNBC and not have someone come on and say that inflation is hitting us left, right, and center. I was out in Jackson Hole last week at a conference with a ton of multifamily owner operators, developers, and uh, as I made the point of transitory inflation uh, and said that, oh, look at lumber. Lumber went from five hundred. Per thousand board foot up to eighteen hundred is back back off to six hundred and fifty per thousand board foot. I had three people almost jump out of their seats and say to me, Willie, that's the spot price, but you can't go buy lumber at that price today. You can't get it. And they said we're seeing inflation of fifteen to twenty percent across the board in projects that we're building today. So you have been very sanguine, I would say, on inflationary pressures coming in. I guess the question that I have is. Should I be listening to those developers who are actually buying in the market or a bunch of really smart economists sitting in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, doing all your research? Okay. So first of all, developers historically, I have a lot of friends who are developers, right? You have a lot of friends who are developers. They're not great data analysts, just as, you know, as, as a kind of reminder. Great people, great yeah, at what they're my clients. I have to I have I to I have to agree to everything too. they say. So let's just be straight here. You can call it straight. I can't. No. So look, 
of course, they're living with some of the particular pressures. And it's not surprising that a sector that involved real, a lot of products, right? A lot of products go into a home, a lot of products go into an apartment. It's complicated and it's the weakest link that is the one that causes the biggest bottleneck, right? And it's what happens when you shut down an economy. And it's why probably we've never shut down, even in war times, you never shut down a whole economy before. Because it doesn't just come back. It it can come back, but it doesn't just come back. So, look, let me give you my favorite inflation number. My favorite inflation number is that year over year in um, July, I believe, inflation was like 5.4%. CPI was 5.4%. Okay. 20% of that number was due to used cars. Now, pause and think about that. One item, used cars, 20% of all measured CPI inflation year over year. That can't be normal. That can't be normal. That's abnormal. What was the abnormality? So what I spend my time doing is when I see abnormal, I go dig around and try to understand why it's abnormal and then untangle if it's transitory or real. So let's take Used cars, which is the headline, right? It's all over. Okay, go back to March, April, May, June, 2020. And I use this as an example. It's not the only one. How many cars were being rented by the car rental agencies? Want to say zero, right? None, okay? The car rental companies didn't need cars because no one was renting, and they were all going bankrupt. Willie, what advice would you give them on how to raise cash? Sell your fleet, right? So what did they do? They sold down their fleet to the exact minimum. What happened to the supply of used cars? Skyrocketed. Now, at the same time, how many people were buying cars? March, April, May last year, when you thought the world would come to an end. Not many. So you had an extraordinary supply and an extraordinarily low demand, and the price plummeted last year. Wasn't a headline because who cared? Nobody was buying the cars, right? The car rental companies cared because they didn't get as much money as they hoped. Now come back to this year. GDP is back. People are renting cars again. People are buying cars again. Not only are they buying cars again, they're buying All the cars they'd have normally bought this year, plus a whole bunch they couldn't buy last year. So demand is not only back, it's disproportionately high because of the pent-up. How about the supply? Well, what's one of the main sources of supply of used cars in a typical year? Car rental companies constantly dump into that. But they don't have any cars to sell into it because they sold them all in 2020. So 2021 has an abnormally low supply of used cars and an abnormally high demand. Gee, guess what happened to prices? They went from abnormally low to abnormally high. Now, do you think that lasts forever? But it could take another year or so for that to find balance, right? And yep, you got chip shortages slowing down the new car market. That's not going to last forever, right? This kind of fundamental, you go, I understand abnormal. I understand abnormal. 20% of all consumer price increase year over year was used cars. By the way, a lot of people didn't even buy a used car. It was irrelevant to them. So that's why when I look at almost every item, in these things, they're transitory. 
Let me give you one that's not transitory. The general movement of housing in excess of general inflation, that's not transitory. And the reason that's not transitory is we have fundamentally underproduced housing over the last 20 years by about three and a half million single family units and about a half a million multifamily. That's a fundamental undersupply, largely created by nimbyism, right? Largely. If you've undersupplied housing and people really want housing, most people really want to live somewhere. What do you think happens to the price? It rises faster than other things. And that is not transitory. Now, that doesn't mean the increase we saw in the past year won't moderate, but it's still going to outrun inflation and rent's going to outrun inflation. And apartments can do well at the same time single family can do well for the same reason Volkswagen can do well at the same time GM and Ford and Toyota do well, which is the fundamentals of the industry. So that is a fundamental that will continue, not continue at the rate it did in the past year, but the pattern of outstripping. And it's done that for a decade. So on that, if you if you think about it from a labor standpoint, if you have six to eight million people joining the labor force, do you think that that puts downward pressure on inflation and wages and actually you can back up to where we were previously? Or have we established a new floor at 15 bucks an hour, which Amazon's paying their workers and it's all up from here? Some of both. Um, there will definitely be a stickiness on wages. I mean, you've got if you've got somebody who's done a great job for you. They worked overtime to get, you know, you through the hard time. They were loyal. Yep, you raised their wage from $15 an hour to 17 or from 12 to 14. You're not going back. You can't say to that person, thank you very much, and I'm cutting you $2 an hour. You'll get crucified, not to mention you don't want to live your life that way. So I think there'll be some stickiness, and that'll be a little drag on the economy that kind of stickiness, right? It'll get passed through by and large in higher prices. But at the same time, it won't create, quote, inflation because inflation is the change, right? Well, that change has already occurred, right? So the change from 12 to 14 already occurred. To have the inflation to continue, I'd have to do it next year from 14 to 16 and the year after that from 16 to 18 and a half. That's inflation. But I do think there's stickiness that will somewhat reestablish higher norms and will be a bit of a drag. So when we're talking about housing, you were just talking about, you know, if you will, factors that are transitory and those that are not. And your projections are that we deliver 1.1 million single family homes in 2021. On the multifamily side, I think it's a little bit over 500,000 units for 2021. And then On single, you've got 1.2, 1.4 in 22 and 23. And on the multi-side, you're saying we're reverting back to something closer to the last 20-year average, which has been like 365,000 units. I think you have it projected as something closer to 450,000 units. I guess the question there, Peter, is this. You also state that we have basically no population growth in the United States right now. We're at like 0.2% population growth. Yet you're holding firm that we are undersupplied in housing by over 3 million units on single family and about three quarters of a million units on multifamily. But we don't have any population growth. Where is that needed supply going if we don't have population growth? Okay, so we've got 
three things. I think the population growth will end up being more like 60 to 70 basis points. I don't think we go back to the 100 basis point growth that we had 10 years ago, but probably more like 60 to 70. Well, that's a lot of bodies. That's a lot of units. But nonetheless, secondly, we have a lot of people living with their parents and some of them like it, but some of them don't. And when I say some of them, I'm actually referring to the parents. I'm not referring to the kids. You know, they're going to make it miserable. So some of those are going to come out. You have some doubling up. You have more doubling up of not just young people. You have more doubling up than people realize. And that's this fundamental. And by the way, I think you had Ivy Zellman on a couple yeah. of weeks ago. She has, by the way, I, I, I think her number on, I'm just back in. I just bounced out and came back in, Willie. Sorry. Quite okay. You were you were right going into Ivy's numbers as it relates to population growth and her her saying that actually we're oversupplied in single by about twenty percent and we're oversupplied in multi by about ten percent. So you were about to, if you will, take the other side of that. So where were you going on that? Yeah, and I think the truth of it is we were producing six hundred thousand single family homes on average for a decade. That's just not enough, right? To produce six hundred thousand homes single-family homes for a decade. It's just not enough when you do the math of the population. And that's why my numbers are, it goes up. The biggest challenge to my numbers is NIMBYism, is can you get that many permits in the places that need them? And I'm using NIMBYism as a broad catch-all for the difficulty of getting permitted and constructed. There's demand there. By the way, you know how you know there's demand there? Look at how much people are paying for the privilege to live in a home relative to their income, right? That's quite high. So talk for a moment then as it relates to an undersupply of housing and the affordability, because in the, in the end of the letter, you talk a lot about affordability, Peter, and you basically say that per the Wells Fargo Affordability Index, only 58% of the housing stock is affordable to a median income wage earner in the United States. And that the long-term trend, I think, is something about 64, 65%. And we were at a high at 76 or 78% of the housing stock was affordable to a median income wage earner in 2012. So yep. we, got, we, got, we got 44, 45% of the population that can't afford a single family home. That sounds like an incredible opportunity for the rental both single family rental as well as apartment rental business, because those people to some degree are trapped being renters. That and when and the real way they're trapped really is not even captured by the affordability, which is about monthly payment, which is a challenge, right? They're even more challenged by down payment as home prices keep going up, right? And that home price going up means you're more and more challenged by the down payment. That's a big limitation. And that's what makes single family renter look good. Single family renter, if you think about it, the landlord fronted the down payment. I mean, if you think about it, the deal is I'll put up the down payment. You give me a private equity return on my down payment money and uh, you cover the monthly operating costs and a little profit on top of that. That's essentially the economic model, right? And people say, I don't want to do that, but I don't have a down payment of my own but I need a home in a school district, right? That's what's going on. And, and that's kind of proof that we have a down payment challenge. The down payment challenge disappeared, not disappeared, alleviated 
during COVID for the bizarre, we talked about this, right? Which was people did not want to change their lifestyle to accumulate a down payment. But when their lifestyle got changed for them, they found they were saving as much in nine months as they had saved in nine years because they couldn't go out to eat. They couldn't go to the ball game. They couldn't go on vacation. And they suddenly looked around and said, gee, I've got money for a down payment. You saw that surge. And the other thing is, sadly, a lot of, let's just call them grandparents. I'm 70, so I would be in that category. A lot of grandparents died over the last 18 months, years earlier than they otherwise would have. And it's a tragedy. But it did mean the bequest came years earlier than anybody thought. You have, you have, math, math, on that. You have math on that in the letter that is just unbelievable. And you, you just do back of the envelope math. It's, I mean, but it's such an interesting view of you have this cohort die. It moves on. Do some back of the envelope about what those people inherited. And all of a sudden, they've got the $50,000 for the down payment for the home. It's stunning. I mean, the, the people kind of go, no, no, it can't be. And I said, wait, just simple. Imagine somebody who's 80 who you thought was going to live to 85, but COVID killed them at 80. And they only had 300,000 life savings. That's their 401k. That's their home. That's probably pretty well paid off. So 300,000 by wealth data is not a big number. And by the way, I didn't even say it was everybody who died at 80. And you suddenly say 300,000. And I split it between my two children and my four grandchildren, 50,000 each. That's a hell of a down payment suddenly. And I didn't have to wait five more years for it. And I'm not saying they're saying, yippee, grandma's dead. Certainly that's not the the spirit of it. But it freed up a lot of money for down payment. Now, as COVID deaths go down, that gets farther behind us. Although there's still legs there this year and probably for another month because of settling up estates. And the involuntary savings is a bit behind us because people are spending again, right? Retail sales are back to all-time highs. People are traveling again for vacations, though mostly domestically. People are eating out at restaurants again. So the savings rate has come down, but the death by COVID early still is giving some early bequests and feeding the home. But the affordability is, as you know, a question somebody said to me, is there an affordability problem in the United States? And I said, not in Lima, Ohio. I, I grew up in Lima, Ohio. Not in Lima, Ohio. I think Lima, Ohio, you can pick up a three-bedroom, three-bath home for like 125000 You know what the problem is? You have to live in Lima, Ohio. And so there isn't an overarching affordability issue. There is a very concentrated affordability issue. Not so much in Texas, really a lot in coastal California and the East Coast. And that's why I say the shortages are not, are are way disproportionately driven by NIMBYism. And NIMBYism has risen everywhere in the United States over the last 20 years. But you know it's risen in some places a lot more than others. Yeah, we we published an article on it last week saying calling on local jurisdictions across the country that they really have to change the code because that's where it starts. The the Biden administration can say, let's go do a lot of LIHTC financing and double Fannie and Freddie's LIHTC investments. It ain't going to change until you get zoning that allows for manufactured housing to actually build new communities. You, you can't get permitting today to build manufacturing housing uh, across the country. And that's the. And it's even more than that, Willie. 
And until you get approval times down to, let's say, Dallas's, if you think about Dallas, you know, why do the approval times take so much longer in name a place than Dallas? It's not like Dallas is building homes that are unsafe. Dallas has found a way to get homes approved on a timeline, and yet they're still safe and sound homes. If every community in America approved them on that timeline, you'd see a lot more homes built, not to mention the kind of stuff you're talking about, right? So there are two other pieces on this, on this, and then I want to shift to rates in a second. But as it relates to the, the savings and the over-depositing, if you will, so you, you yeah. track how much sits in the banking system for the last 40 years. And on average, it's been something around two to $3 trillion. And we're now sitting at somewhere between eight and nine trillion. So we're over deposited by about $6 trillion. And so A, what's the effect of that? Because I think all these banks are actually going to start trying to put that money out. And you go into great depth as it relates to changes that the Fed put into place during the pandemic that actually has pulled down reserve requirements. And you're basically saying, Banks are going to start lending. But I think potentially more importantly is a data point you have in the letter that I found fascinating, which is that the U.S. consumer levered him or herself up to about 2006, 2007. And the graph you show is fantastic, where it shows from the 1980s to the 1990s to the mid-2000s, leverage as it relates to personal debt versus what I can actually service as an individual peaked in 2007. And since 2007, for the last 13 to 14 years, it's been going steadily down. And we are now at a, at a, if you will, disposable income level where I have income and I'm not paying it all out in debt service that is a 40-year low. Yeah. So the consumer balance sheet is better than it's been in the last 40 years with an over-deposited banking system. Pick up on either one of those. And I'll add one more. If you look at cash uh, deposits by both individuals and, and uh, corporations, staggering record highs, staggering record highs. So think about what you're, you have staggering amounts of record cash by individuals and corporations. You have low leverage, good coverage by both. You have banks with unprecedented unlent against reserves. Okay. And by the way, you have unprecedented dry powder at private equity. Fair enough? Okay? And yet, some people will look at you with a straight face and say, I think things are overpriced because people have lost their minds. And you go, wait a minute. That makes no sense. When would you expect greed really is winning? You know, the battle between greed and fear. So if you go back to March 2020, late March, early April, Fear was winning, right? Fear was winning big. Now let's talk about today. Yep, prices are up and all that kind of stuff, but greed isn't winning. By the way, this is true for real estate. This is true. How do I know greed's not winning? Greed's not winning because what I'd expect to see if greed was winning is our cash balances as individuals would be way below normal because we believe trees grow to the sky. Our corporate cash balances would be way below normal because we'd be investing in everything because we believe trees grow in the sky. Private equity would have well below normal dry powder because they believe trees grow in the sky. And banks would have relatively low reserve availability because they're lending because they 
believe trees grow to the sky. And what my message is to people is in the general battle of fear and greed, we're not in paralyzed fear like we were in late 2008, 2000, early nine, like we were as the pandemic started. But we're a long way from greed setting in. And that's why I say load up on assets. Load up on assets because sometime greed's going to really appear. Now, before it appears, you could get some panic, but it's going to come back, right? It's got, it might go for a little bit, but it's going to come back. So we're, we haven't even seen greed set in with this amount of money. So We've Mark, never seen greed with this amount of money. So you've been, you've been very, very, very consistent, and for a long time have said this, that cap rates are not correlated to interest rates. And I want to get to interest rates in a minute, but before we get there, the Lineman Real Estate Index basically takes a look at capital going to commercial real estate, and, and you have shown time and time again that a much better determinant of where cap rates are going to go is that real estate index, how much capital, debt, and equity is going to commercial real estate. And what you're projecting right now is that we're going to see a two to 300 basis point increase in that index over the next Correct. five years. And in the process of that, a significant shrinking of cap rates on most specifically multifamily. And you, you say in that two to 300 basis point increase in the Lineman real estate index, you're going to pick up a 10% reduction in multifamily cap rates. And, and the only, yeah, here's the thought experiment. It's not even intellectual. Here's the thought experiment, okay? And I'll shorten it up. Suppose you knew there'll be twice as much money chasing apartments a year from now as there is today. Are we going to have twice as many apartments a year from now as we do today? No, we'll have one and a half percent more apartments and twice as much money trying to get to it. What happens to cap rates? They go down. You and I could argue about how much they go down, but you don't have to. By the way, did you ask me, well, what are interest rates? It's not about interest about rates. To. It's about that's the way the money. That's coming next. That's coming next. But by the way, let me do the thought experiment in reverse. And this is what I'm now going to give you is what happened in 2009, early 2009. What if I told you half as much money is going to be chasing real estate a year from now as today? What's going to happen to cap rates? The answer is going to go way up. It's the weight of money. And interest rates are important to your balance sheet. Interest rates are important to your coverage. I increasingly, one of the big changes in my thinking over the last eight, 10 years has been, I no longer think of debt or leverage in terms of LTV. I think of it in terms of coverage. And oh yeah. The great financial crisis changed that paradigm, I think forever. Uh, Up until the great financial crisis, we would focus from a lending standpoint on LTV. Great financial crisis said, forget about LTV. It's all coverage. And that's where everyone's been ever since. And, and by the way, that should and be it, and it might honestly, for a letter. It, it, sorry, sorry to jump right back in. But it, honestly, you talked in the letter this quarter about the discipline that lenders showed in 2016, 17, 18, when the economy is going well and they had the ability to put additional leverage in and that real estate lenders didn't do it. I truly believe that what you just pointed at, that shift from LTV to oh, debt yeah. service coverage is what was one of the main drivers of that discipline. I think you're right. And- Also, I think slowly the owner community came to realize I want to be around 
on the other side of any cycle. And if I don't have coverage, I won't be around. LTV, you can work your way through a down much easier than you can work your way through no coverage. And if I've got coverage, I can find a way to get to the other side. That's a perfect segue to my next thing, which is one of the coolest analyses. I don't think, to my knowledge, you've done this before, but your team took the NARIT index and looked at it over the last 42 years and trunched it up into 10-year return analyses. And then you did it on a three-year return analysis. And yeah. it didn't make any difference what 10 years you held it on. For, you bought in 41 years ago and sold it 31 years ago. You bought in 40 years ago and sold it 30 years ago. Over all asset classes, you would not have lost money any time in the last 42 years by holding apartments, industrial, office, or retail. When you go to the three-year hold, though, because those are shorter increments, obviously, there are periods of time where you would have lost money. And I think the highest was office, where 15% of those three-year increments, you would have lost money. The lowest is multifamily. At 6% of the times, if you'd only held for three years, you would have lost money. But the thing that shocked me, Peter, and I, I love the analysis, and anyone who hasn't gotten the Lineman letter, buy it and read this analysis. is so good. But what struck me was that it's not going to come as a surprise to anyone that the best performing asset is multifamily, yet also the one with the highest returns is multifamily. And so I read that and I said, why would anyone ever invest in a hotel again? Because it has the highest loss percentage possibility and the lowest returns, whereas multi has the lowest loss percentage and the highest returns. Look, if you hold long-term unleveraged, the gaps in performance are notable, but they're not staggering. It's as you start putting leverage on and you shorten up the time period that you get a lot of issues arise. And yes, you do better. The best returns are when everything went right and you held for three years, right? The worst returns are when everything went wrong and you held for three years. The interesting thing, Willie, about the 10-year holds, and this is why the families like the New York families and the D.C. families and the California families who have, yes, they use leverage, but not crazy historically once they created the wealth, time cures a lot of problems, right? Time cures a lot of problems. If you came due with a lot of debt on a three-year hold last March, you were screwed, right? Or you came due with a three-year hold in 2009 in the first or second quarter, you were screwed. Even though if you came back five years later, the property's doing terrific. Property's doing terrific, right? And we know people who got squeezed in 2008 and nine, and the property three, four years, five years later is doing just fine. That's why the coverage is so important. You want to be able to survive. We've all made real mistakes where we chose a property in the wrong neighborhood or whatever, more typically, what we've done is choose the wrong capital stack and the wrong time frame that accentuated risk that we don't control. And that's why long hold. Now, as to why anybody invests in anything but apartments, I mean, every property. <laughs> I has, you know, I, I know, that too much. I know. every but property I... has its advantages and disadvantages, but the multifamily has one truly unique advantage. And that is Freddie and Fannie, okay? And you could add uh, FHA and such, but Freddie and Fannie. And by the way, if the shopping, if Freddie and Fannie 
lent in the same way to shopping centers. Shopping centers would be a more attractive investment or hotels would be a more attractive investment if they did. Why? It just deepens the capital pool. And real estate's about availability of capital and predictability. And multifamily has better depth and predictability of capital than any other sector. And in that sense, it is unambiguously safer. And and along those lines, I think, and this will lead us to the question on rates, it is also increasingly being seen as a proxy for fixed income. You put in this Lineman letter all the sovereign rates that people are earning and almost all, well, every developed nation has negative real interest rates today on their sovereign debt. But you look at some of the European company countries and you sit there and you say, you know, do I, I can't remember the specific numbers, but do I want to buy a German bond at 72 basis points of the negative real interest rate? Or do I want to buy a U.S. Treasury at 154 or 152 or wherever it's trading today? You seem to be saying you can go fixed, you can go float. Rates aren't going to move. Are you are you uh... They're not going to move a lot? And that's because the weight of money on the short end. I don't think the Fed is going to raise. By the way, not just our Fed, central banks, I should say, including our Fed. I don't think they're going to raise rates fast on the short end. They might raise it. They might roll away to 50 basis points. You know, they might. You know, over two years, they may get it up to 50 basis points. On the long end, at some point, the Fed's going to stop QE infinity. They're going to stop buying. That will put a little less support under the treasury market, and that will drive up intermediate and long rates a bit, right? You just have one less bidder, okay? However, go back to our how much personal savings are there, how much corporate savings is there, how much money is out there. That weight of money is going to chase assets, and an asset, a major asset is government bonds. So, yes, that money cannot outbid the U.S. government right now, right, the Fed. So the Fed disappears and rates go up 25 basis points. And then that weight of money out there says, oh, at that yield, I'll do it. So I think it's maybe at 25 or 50 basis points that if the Fed stops buying, but it's not a meltdown. And and I don't think we go back to the world I knew where the real rate was 200, 250 basis points. Because I don't think we go back to a world that has the amount of money in it that existed when the real rate was 200 to 225 basis points on a, on a government instrument. We're now in a world where you have to pay the government for them to make sure they give you your money back. Right? Remember when you were a little kid and you watched like a Western and you, the bank had money in there and you had to actually pay the bank to store your money, right? And that's what's happened is just to give safety, you have to pay the bank to hold your money because there's so many people who want that safety, right? And that's because there's so much money out there that some of it wants apartments and some of it wants tech, but some of it wants, I just want to be able to get it back if I need it. That's going to keep rates down, not necessarily down as low as they were, but low in the sense of by any historic standard. Does, uh, Does it concern you that our national debt 
is now almost above GDP at 20, well, it's above, it's at 26 trillion and we're right now running about 22 trillion of, of uh, GDP. Does that number concern you or with where you think rates no. are say it doesn't concern you? You were very clear, Peter, at the beginning of the pandemic. Geez, look at the numbers. We can afford $5 trillion of stimulus to be able to get us out of this and we're gonna do that because we're barring against future today. We ought to do it, it's gonna save lives, it's gonna keep the economy going. Now we're at this debt ceiling issue and a lot. I had dinner last night with Senator Bennett and Senator Hickenlooper, the two senators from my great state of Colorado. And uh, there's a lot going on on Capitol Hill right now as it relates to this reconciliation bill and also the debt ceiling. Does the debt ceiling concern you at all? No, that's theater. And there's, quite frankly, better theater to watch than that, at least in my humble opinion. (laughs) It's theater. Do you really think they're going to shut the government down for good? I mean, come on, that's theater. And there'll be a lot of, you know, but it's theater. So I don't worry about that. By the way, I don't even worry about the another $5 trillion because everything I said about the last $5 trillion, the math is still the same on the next $5 trillion. So the $5 trillion of debt per se doesn't worry me. But if you go back, Willie, to when we first talked about CARES 1, that's a long time ago when we first talked about CARES 1. My comment was, of course, we could afford it. Are we getting our money's worth? And I think with CARES 1, we definitely did. With CARES 2, we mostly did. And since then, we're not getting a lot for our money. And we can afford anything we get our money's worth on. We can't afford anything we don't get our money's worth on. Even if, quote, we can afford it, we can't afford to just squander resources. And so my concern about the current five trillion, they're calling it three and a half trillion, but it's really five, is we're not going to get our money's worth. We're going to get some number like, I don't know, for five trillion in cost, we're going to get three trillion in value. That's a negative arbitrage of two trillion, and that's 10% of GDP. And okay, it's spread over 10 years or 12 years, but it's a negative arbitrage, right? We're, we're squandering resources. But we're not going to do everything stupid. We're just going to do a lot. So what worries me is not the number, but rather we aren't getting our money's worth. And by the way, that worries you. You could say, I can afford a car, right? Suppose you want to go buy a car and you say, well, I can afford the sticker, but am I getting my money's worth? Am I getting my money's worth is what is the determinant. Not, and we can afford it. Question is, are we getting I want, to be re- I want to be real clear with people who may not read the Lindman letter. When you read it, you will clearly see that Peter is not agnostic on tax rates. He is a libertarian. He does not think the tax rates ought to move up as much as they are projected to move up. Hopefully it's some, something inside of that. But on that same theme, one point, and then I'm going to ask you a question. Um, You also show the Gallup poll of presidential approval ratings. And while everyone thinks that Joe Biden and the Biden administration right now are are doing everything wrong and after the exit from Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera, you point out in the letter that Biden's approval rating sits right on top of Bill Clinton's and Ronald Reagan's at the same time in their first terms. So before everyone, I'm not saying whether you should write off the Biden administration or not, I'm just saying there have been some past examples of people sitting right where Biden is who had, by all measures, very successful presidencies. The question I have for you is this, Peter. We've talked about the credit side, and it looks great. You have a canaries in the coal mine analysis that you do every single quarter. And if you got five canaries, everything's great. And you go through 
leverage levels. You go through household net worth. You go through all this stuff, and it's five canaries, five canaries, five canaries, and then behind you right now, you have yeah, the five canaries. You should appreciate my my backdrop or my five canaries, right? There are the so, five canaries, but on one indicator. COVID pushing the economy right back down the tank. You have three canaries dead and only two still alive. That doesn't leave us a lot of margin of error here on this COVID thing. Right. Let me just say one thing and then I'll come to one thing on the uh, tax bill or whatever you want to call it, the spending bill. I got somebody asked me the other day, am I a big fan of the proposal? And I said, well, come on. I was trained by Milton Friedman. What are the odds that I'm going to like Therefore, I'm going to like a package designed by Bernie Sanders. I mean, that, that doesn't mean Bernie Sanders is wrong. It's just what are the odds, right? So there's that. Second comment I make to people is don't forget, I, I'm 70 years old, and I've rarely seen good economic policy out of Washington. Rarely, in all the years. I mean, sometimes they're dumber and sometimes they're less dumb, but they're never what I would say, boy, those are brilliant. And yet the economy grows and yet the economy grows. And it's a testimony to the ingenuity, the creativity, the entrepreneurship is that we grow anyway. Yeah, we may grow 20 basis points slower, 10 basis points faster. But and that's what I think will happen again. We may grow a little slower, but we'll grow because. And we always say, well, you know, it's not we're, we're going to grow. Remember, most of what D.C. is about is distribution, not about efficiency of the economy. They window dress it as growth, but their first and foremost is about redistributing, either from the country to their district or their state or to their pet projects or their pet philosophies. So and redistribution is not growth. It may be wonderful, but it's not growth. Right. Because you need a middleman that takes a scrape for redistributing. And unlike you guys who are efficient middlemen, they aren't real efficient middlemen. Right. So that's the challenge. Now, come to the canaries in COVID. OK, right, so go, I, yeah, I, I, one thing just real quick, because I don't we've got limited time. And I and I one of the things I want to do, I don't want to go too deep on COVID. So if you can make it real quick, I think your feeling is that COVID the numbers you just talked to me about beforehand are they're trending well, and you think that you might put a canary back on those. Right. I think I got a canary comes alive real quick. COVID cases are down 30 percent in the last three weeks. That means that based on what we've seen in other countries in about five weeks, we're back to where we were in, what, May, June. And when that happens, I think, quote, we're back to where I started with in terms of the GDP growth and the job growth. And we pick up. And uh, hopefully we get more vaccination and and we're ready, better prepared for the next wave that might hit. So I feel good. And you could even get it's not it's very possible, Willie, by the next time we do one of these, we've got only one dead canary on COVID. So talking about distribution, it makes me think about the cities across the country that you all track. So you track, I think, 48 MSAs and put really detailed information on each one of them in the Lineman report. I was shocked. I was shocked at the 48 MSAs you track. There is only one MSA that is higher on employment today than it was pre-COVID, yeah. and that is Salt Lake City. That, that shocked me. I've seen so much activity in Nashville and, so, and everywhere, and the only one that has more employment today than it did pre-COVID is Salt Lake City, and everything else is on a negative all the way down to 
economies like L.A. and New York that are still way, way down there. But you you segmented out to very hot, hot, doing well, and then cold as a turkey. And right. uh, it's a fantastic analysis there. Just what's your take as it relates to job growth across the country and what you're looking at? Because one of the things in your hot group, Peter, or your very hot group, I was very surprised there weren't many smile cities in there. I call smile cities the ones you put in Seattle, Washington. You draw a smile across the United States up to Boston, Massachusetts. You don't want to invest north of it. You do want to invest south of it. And there were very few of your very hot cities that were below that smile line. So I think what you're going to get six months from now when we do this is a lot more of the smile cities are going to be in there. And that's because New York, Washington, Philadelphia, Boston, Los Angeles, San Francisco really hit hard by COVID and the restrictions that they placed on themselves during COVID. And I think given six more months, you'll see them coming off of the bottom more and more normalcy happen. They're going to catch up a bit, right? They're going to, they've been disproportionately hurt. They're going to disproportionately recover. Not overnight. It's going to take some time, but six months from now, by the way, that doesn't mean Salt Lake doesn't do well. It doesn't mean Nashville doesn't do well. They will. Those are fundamental growth places. They have been and will continue to be. But the recovery, those three and a half million people are disproportionately in New York and Philadelphia and Los Angeles and so forth. And the, the missing five and a half are disproportionately there. And as recovery occurs, that's where they'll be. So I think we get back to something more recognizable. And I would think six months from now, you'll have another six to eight major markets joining Salt Lake as having higher employment than they did pre-COVID. So that leads well into my last question to you, because I got about 15 more pages of notes to go through with you, but I'm going to run out of time today, as I always do. Um, back to office. Uh, as you well know, I was very much a proponent of back to office, had everyone at Walker and Dunlop keyed up on coming back into the office on September 7th. The Delta variant hit, and we sort of put a pause button on it. And over the last month, I've talked to lots of other CEOs who sort of have been revising their view of, do I really need to get everyone back into the office? And in the Linneman letter, you point out that people are about 20 to 40% less productive in work from home than they are at the office. I would say that is actually very different from your former Wharton colleague, Adam Grant, who says that they did meta studies of pre-pandemic flexible work schedules and the people who had flexibility for two to three days a week were more pleased with their job and were more productive than the people who went to the office every single day. But it feels like we're in no man's land right now, Peter. And I, I guess the question I'd say for you is this, would you rather invest today in Boston properties or WeWork given going back to a physical office that Boston properties owns or flex office space that WeWork will own? Uh, given those two, I'd go with Boston Properties. No offense to Sandeep, I think he'll do fine. But I, given those choice, I'd go with Owen Thomas. Let me put my summary statement. That? Go ahead, keep going. No, my summary statement on back to the office is never forget that one of the most popular British television series of all time and one of the most popular U.S. television series of all time was The Office. And the office was premised about uh, around this wink and a nod that all of us recognized that even when people were in the office, 
they screwed off about 90% of the time. And, and we all knew there was an element. Ricky Gervais captured it to an extreme, as, as only a gifted comedian could. But if you think they screw off at the office, do I need to finish the rest of the sentence? You don't. But I would also say to you that the number one selling film of all times is also Star Wars. And that doesn't mean that all of us get to go to space. <laughs> well done. Touche. You get the last word there. As I said, we could keep going for hours. Uh, we are out of time for today. This is super fun. To anyone who hasn't read it, get a copy of the Lineman Report. And um, I'll send out some show notes on it as well of some of the points that Peter and I have talked about. But Peter, great to see you. Enjoy Germany. Have a great time over in Europe. And uh, we will see everyone next week for um, Richard Tedlow, Harvard Business School professor, uh, on his new book, Charismatic Leadership, which should be fantastic. We will see Peter back here at the end of this coming quarter. And um, Peter, thanks again. It's always great. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care.